we're going to be going back into the book of Mark today, um, and we'll be going through Mark for a couple of weeks, and I'm really excited for this chapter. Um, this chapter is really one unit, but we're going to preach the first half of it today. Um, and like I said, I'm, I'm really excited. I've been looking forward to this for a long time. So if you could, please go to Mark chapter 5, and open your Bibles to the first verse. I'll read it together for us, and then I'll pray, and then we'll learn from God's word together. Mark chapter 5, verse 1. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him and crying out with a loud voice, he said, what have you to do with me? Jesus, son of the most high God, I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told us of the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed, and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from the region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Please pray with me. Our Lord Jesus Christ, you are the King of all. You're mighty, you're merciful. Lord, we thank you for this passage of scripture that teaches us even demoniacs, Lord, are not beyond your reach. We thank you, Father, for giving us your word, that we have this gift where we can learn of your son. I ask, Lord, that you'd help us, everyone here, not only to pay attention, Lord, as if this was a class, but to be changed, that we would hear what you have to say. And Lord, we would bow and worship your son, for he is worthy. We pray all this in his perfect name. Amen. So the key idea for today is that Jesus is the son of, the, of God most high. Jesus, the son of God most high, and he's merciful and mighty to save. I'll say it again. 
Jesus is the son of God most high, and he is merciful and mighty to save. Now, I remember a few weeks back, um, Justin, he preached uh, from the end of Mark chapter four, right? And there's a storm and the wind, the waves, and all the disciples are freaking out, right? But then Jesus calms the storm and he says, why are you so afraid? Do you not have any faith? And then they're even more afraid because Jesus has done what is impossible for normal man, right? So this is the context. Earlier, perhaps the very same day, the disciples came through this terrifying storm and then they actually came to the shore. And that's where we pick up from verse one, right? They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. Now imagine you're one of the disciples. You'd probably be cold, wet, tired, miserable. I mean, if I was there, all I'd want was like, I don't know, a cup of hot chocolate, maybe a comfy sofa by a fire and to take a nap, right? That's what I would want. But instead, as you get closer to land, you jump out of the boat to push on the shore, out of the corner of your eye, you see this blur moving. It looks like someone running, but something's really strange about him. I mean, his gait is all wrong. His hair is wild and he looks more like an animal than a man. And he's moving fast. He's moving really fast towards you. Verse two says, and when Jesus stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs. And that region of the tombs were not like holes on the ground like we have, like graves, but they're rather like small caves. So the point is that he's actually living like a wild man, like he's camping or something. And no one could bind this man anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart. He broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. I mean, as far as you're concerned, if you were there, you think this guy is crazy, right? He's filthy as if the only shower he's ever taken was from the heavens above. Mud clings to his hair, his hands, his feet, his knees. He has no clothes. The bones of his body stick out like jagged stones. His body is covered with gashes and wounds, scars and scabs, as if he's been at war with the mountains themselves. And he reeks. You look at his arms and his ankles and they're scarred. But from what? It looks like he was a prisoner at one time, chained, but now he's escaped. And so fear rises in your heart. And then you see his eyes. They're, they're lit like, like a wicked flame, like they're looking here and there. They're glaring at things that are invisible, fighting the air. And you're worried that at any moment he might leap upon you and tear you apart. You survived the storm, the storm in the sea, but what new danger lies on the shore? This is the demoniac of Garessa. Now to understand demoniacs, we first need to understand something about demons. Demons are unclean spirits. That's what it says in the book of Mark. Originally created by God as good angels. So demons used to be angels, but now they're demons. Now they're evil. Long ago, Satan and his angels rebelled against God. And thus they're sentenced by, sentenced by God to be demons. Now they're enemies of God. They hate all that God loves. They love all that God hates. And their entire reason for existing in their eyes is to increase human suffering. They do await the final day of judgment when finally Satan and all his demons will be thrown into hell forever. But until that day, demons influence the world. 
and they can even influence people and dwell within people like this man. When that happens, the Bible calls these people demoniacs or demon-possessed. While demons are wicked, in the Gospels, demoniacs are actually consistently presented as victims, as victims. The Bible doesn't say that they deserved their demon possession. We're simply told that they're sick and they're tormented, and Jesus treats them with compassion. Now, now think about think about this demoniac, right? He wasn't born that way. He probably lived a normal life. Maybe he went to normal school like you guys. Maybe he had even a family. He had friends and a community. But somehow, some way, the demons came. And slowly, they compelled him to live outside, away from his family, away from his friends, away from his community. He became so wild that the locals, maybe even some of his former friends and family, tried to tie him up with chains repeatedly, like, like he was an animal or something. Verse 5 says that he was constantly crying out day and night. Um, I think a, a more vivid translation is that he was screaming day and night. And can you imagine living next to him? Like every night as he went to bed, you hear his screams. Your little siblings would cry. Your parents would probably tremble and lock the doors a little tighter. But you ever ask, why does he scream? Is it because he's angry? Or he's in pain? Loneliness? Sorrow? And lastly, the scripture says that he was always cutting himself, always gashing himself upon the stones. Every day, new wounds. Every day, new blood. Every day, new misery. This is the demoniac of Garessa. He's a pitiful person. At first, when we hear about demons and demoni- or when we hear about demoniacs, we're, we're, we're afraid, right? And that's, it, they're kind of freaky. But if we stop and think about the fact that they're humans, we actually realize that we are not so different. Now, I'm pretty sure none of you live among the tombs and um, sleep outside or live like wild children. If you are, um, that's not okay. You should definitely talk to your small group leader, talk to me, that is not okay, okay? But still, we can see ourselves in the demoniac. I wanna show you that by walking through what might be called a progression of sin, okay? I wanna walk you through the progression of sin. When we sin, first sin deceives us. At the root of every sin we've ever committed, is a promise of something that we want. This is something like this. If you look at that website, things will be better. Or people will like you if you're smart. It's not cheating if no one knows. Or no one likes the real you. You better do what they want or else you'll have no friends. Or don't worry, you know, sin is fun as long as it doesn't hurt anymore. All of that is a bold-faced lie. God says that there is no good besides him. God says that he makes known to us the paths of life. In his presence, our fullness of joy. In his right hand, our pleasures forevermore. Psalm 16. In Christ, in his fullness, is our fullness of life. Life abundant, as John 10 says. It's overflowing. It's everlasting. It's true. You don't need to to sin to be happy. But sin lies. And it says that there's pleasure in it, not in God. It's kind of like bait on a fishing hook, right? The bait looks delicious and pleasurable and good, but its only purpose is to hide the hook, the hook that pierces your soul and drags you to death. Sin lies. Then sin enslaves us. When we bite, even just once, sin begins to enslave us. At its best, the promise is fleeting and temporary, but we quickly feel the stab of the hook in our mouth. 
Everyone looks to sin for satisfaction, but all that gives is emptiness. And instead, like fools, we return to it again and again, like a dog to its vomit, like a pig to its filth. We're slaves to sin. And we think that we need to sin to feel safe, to feel relief, to feel good. Titus 3.3 says, we Christians also once were foolish ourselves, but we are disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. Enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. Sin becomes our master. Enslaving us to do its will that we would obey its lusts. We may not be physically chained, but like the demoniac, in our sin, we're trapped. We're mastered by a power we cannot defeat. Once sin deceives us, then enslaves us, it isolates us. It pulls on the hook, reels us in, and draws us away from the community of God. Our consciences will tell us that the sin is wrong, and we should stop, but we can't. In our shame, we don't confess to God. We don't confess to others. Instead, we hide. We're, we're afraid of being exposed, afraid of what God might do, afraid of what people might say if they really knew who we were. So we long for the darkness rather than for the light, for our deeds are evil. Like the demoniac who wanders among the tombs, we wander alone. But in John 6, Jesus says, all the Father gives to me will come to me, and the one who comes I will not cast out. In 1 John, it says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to what? To condemn us? No, to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the truth we need to hear when we're isolated. But away from the community of God, so often we hear nothing but lies from our sin. After isolating us, sin then forth torments us. As the sin increases, we're not satisfied with its fake pleasures. Sin always wants more sin. Sin always wants more sin. First, maybe it starts with cursing at school with your friends because you just want to fit in. You don't want to feel like that weird Christian who, you know, is always prude and doesn't say bad things. Just a slip here or there, you know, just to prove that you, you belong. But to hide it, you live in hypocrisy. And eventually when your parents find out, because parents are smart, they punish you. And so you respond in bitterness. That sows hatred, enmity, fighting within your family. So you begin to spend more time away from home with your friends doing dumb things, doing immoral things. At first, you don't really want to, but to fit in, you comply. And so they complain, you complain. They cheat, you cheat. They lie, so you lie. They drink, so you drink. And so as your life spirals, life becomes one long nightmare. I mean, remember, what did sin promise in the beginning? Happiness, joy, pleasure. Or is it? It's gone, gone like the mist. And in place of that, we reap torment. A life of sin is really horrific. It's a terrible way to live. We run to poison sludge, trying to satisfy our thirst. Mark this, remember this. Sin never leads to blessing. Sin never leads to joy. It'll never make you happy. It'll never give you what you really need or what you really want. Don't believe the lies. Don't gash yourself day and night upon the rock of its lies and its torment. Finally, after doing all that to us, fifth, sin destroys us. Remember, sin is not content with just a little suffering. It always wants more. Smaller sins want to become huge sins. James 1 says, Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. 
And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. No one becomes a murderer overnight. Right? No one wakes up and like, you know, I'm going to be a murderer today. It's just what I want to do, right? Ordinary sins, quote unquote ordinary, like anger, jealousy, bitterness, hatred, they come first, but they always threaten to become rage and murder. No one becomes enslaved to others' opinions overnight. Right? First, it's just clothes, then it's makeup, then it's obsessive social media, but soon it breaks into open anxiety and, and panic attacks and dangerous dieting and throwing up and a complete erosion of who you are in God. Sin isn't content to just kill a part of you. It always wants to destroy all of you. Sin is a liar, to cheat, to counterfeit, to scam. Don't listen to it. And yet in our natural state, apart from God, sin is our master. It's our poison of choice. It's our very living hell. We are both the perpetrator, meaning we're the ones who have committed the crime, and we're the guilty or, and the victim because we do the sin, obviously, therefore we're guilty. And yet we're also destroyed by the sin that we thought we wanted so much. Those people who are in a burning building need a fireman to save them. Those people who are drowning in the sea need a lifeguard to save them. Those who have a terrible disease need a doctor to save them. But who can save from sin? Who can save from demoniac from demon possession? Who can set us free from our wickedness and our wretchedness, from this horrible life of living as a slave to what sin says? You know the answer. It's Jesus Christ. He's our Savior King. And what I want to show you now is by both his might and his mercy, he sets the captives free. Look at me, verse 6. Let's look at the King's might, starting with verse 6. And when he saw Jesus from afar, this is a demoniac. He ran and he fell down before him. Or fell down doesn't mean like he tripped on a rock and then like, I don't know, fell in his face. It means that he went to Jesus and he bowed his face in reverence to Christ. He knew who he was. Look at verse seven. And crying out with a loud voice, the demoniac said, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. Although it's the man's mouth that is moving, the man's voice that's coming out, these words come from the demons within the man. Right? They know who Jesus is. And they ask, basically, what do you want with us? Right? They don't want anything to do with him. But they, like trembling subjects of the king, must answer to him. And so they call him the son of the most high God. Right? The title of the most high God is, is really an invitation to compare the big G God, the true God, with every other so-called little G God. Right? Now, who, who knows the story of Exodus? Um, how God, you know, split the Red Sea. He brought Israel out of, out of the nation of Egypt. Who's heard that story before? Yeah? If you've ever been in children's ministry for like half a week, you've definitely heard that before, okay? Now, but did you know, sorry, all those 10 plagues, right? Did you know that actually all of those 10 plagues are God's judgment on a specific tiny G, God? I don't have time to go through all 10, but here's what I mean. When God turned the Nile River into blood, it was signifying the death of Hapi, the supposed God of the Nile, right? If the Nile is bleeding, the God of the Nile died. God caused boils on the Egyptians, which they could not heal, thus judging Isis, the supposed goddess of healing. God brought darkness over the land, mocking Ra, the supposed God of the sun, who was in the Egyptian religion, the creator of all things. And finally, God killed the firstborn son, even of the Pharaoh, thus mocking Pharaoh, who himself in his eyes was a God. 
most high God versus these nothing gods. The gods of Egypt are nothing. They're nobodies. They have no power. They're no strength. They're fake. And the real God of Israel, he proved it by destroying them, by making fun of them. In response to this, the Israelites sing in Exodus 15, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you? Majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, working wonders. I ask you, who's like the real God? No one. No one. The God of scripture, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he alone is the true and living God. To him belongs all power, all dominion, all might, all authority. And Jesus Christ is his son, the son of the most high God. In fact, I want to show you where that, that specific title is used in the book of Luke. So go forward, just one book, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, go to Luke chapter one, and go to verse 31. And we'll show you where the angel Gabriel uses this to talk about Jesus. So Luke chapter one, verse 31, Gabriel says, and behold, you Mary will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He'll be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Jesus can inherit the throne of David because he's the son of the most high. He can reign over Israel as a divine king because he's the son of the most high. All right, we've been saying it over and over again since like very book, very beginning of Mark. Jesus is the king come into his kingdom. Don't forget it. He's the king with kingly authority of the most high God. Now flip with, flip with me back to Mark chapter five. In verse seven, the demons say to Jesus, I adjure you by God, do not torment me. Now this is a cry of terror. The demons are absolutely scared out of their minds. Imagine if you had to wrestle a 300 pound sumo wrestler but the loser dies, what would you do? Or imagine you have to face Steph Curry in a three-pointer competition, but the loser dies, what would you do? You're hopeless, right? Absolutely hopeless. There's no hope of you winning. There's no hope of you ever beating either of them. The wisest thing for you to do would be get on your face and beg, beg for mercy, beg to not die, right? This is exactly the attitude the demons, the demonics have, the demons have to the son of the most high God. They know without a shadow of doubt, they got no chance. They're utterly powerless in front of him. As one commentator writes, compelled by sheer dread, the demons have utterly subdued before their judge. What no human being could tame, even through the use of ropes and chains, Jesus restrained with nothing more than his presence. When the demons saw Jesus, I don't think they just saw this normal 30-ish you know, year old man um, standing on the, on the shore of Galilee. I think they actually saw him as he really is in his full glory. And that's why they're terrified. Look with me at how Christ is described in the book of Revelation by the apostle John. So you can flip, if you want to, you can flip to Revelation one. It's all the way in the back of the New Testament, last book of the New Testament. Revelation one chapter, Revelation one, verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and his feet were like burnished, that means glowing, bronze, refined in a furnace. 
and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. With his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And this is what John does now. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. The sheer image of Christ was so glorious, John just keeled over as if he had died. Think about it this way. If we were to draw near the sun, we would be incinerated. If we were to try to hold molten lava in our hands, we would be melted. If we were to try to fathom the trillions of galaxies, each of those trillions of galaxies having their own billions of stars, and each of those stars having all their planets or asteroids or whatever is rotating around them, our minds would explode. So what do you think would happen if we were to be in the very presence of God? We'd be incinerated. He's the Almighty. He's the Lord of the whole universe. He's the King of all kings. He's the God most high. If we were left to ourselves, we'd be consumed as if in an inferno. When Moses asked, asked God, he said, show me your glory. God replied, you cannot see my face, for no man can see my face and live. AKA, you'd be obliterated because I am so glorious. This is the God of scripture. This is the God who incarnated and walked among us in Jesus. This is the God before whom demons cower. And this is the God who angels worship. Our God is the God most high. Christ is his perfect son. And he has all the might of his father because he's our great king. We've seen his might before the demon, the demoniacs. We should be in all of it. But now, let's see his mercy. Look at me at verse 8. Let's see the king's mercy, starting with verse 8. For he, Jesus was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Jesus uses almighty power to command the demons to leave. He's not a selfish tyrant. He uses his power to love this man. And Jesus says to the demoniac, What is your name? Verse 9. The demoniac replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs. Let us enter into them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. Go with me to verse 15. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind and they were afraid now first note the language of authority the demons beg jesus they urge jesus and then in verse 13 jesus gave them permission they couldn't do anything without his permission because he is in perfect control second note how desperate the demons are for destruction they killed about two thousand pigs by suicide just because they love death. Demons always seek to corrupt the good creation of God. Third, note Jesus' priority. He knew what the demons would do, and yet he was willing to let thousands of pigs die for the sake of saving this one man. God loves animals. He made them. But make no mistake, humans, you and me, are much more valuable than pigs or pets. Fourth, note that the demoniac is unclean. Now, remember, if you were with us when we were preaching about Mark's, uh, the leper, the one who had a, a skin disease, remember that being unclean doesn't mean you need a bath or a shower. It refers to your spiritual state before God. 
that you're dirty before him. Because God is holy and pure, unclean people cannot enter into his presence. If you tried, you'd die. To be unclean is to live in a world of shame, of rejection, of unworthiness. But this man, unlike the leper, is not just unclean once. He's unclean four times over. Let me show you. First, he's unclean because he has an unclean spirit. And not just one unclean spirit, but potentially hundreds or even thousands of unclean spirits. Second, he's unclean because he lives among tombs. What's in tombs? Dead people. Dead bodies. Dead bodies are unclean in the Jewish religion. Third, he's unclean because he's living near pigs, which are considered unclean animals that Jews are not allowed to eat. Fourth, he's considered unclean because he's living in a Gentile, aka not Jewish, a Gentile region. So he's a spiritual reject four times over. And yet remember, Jesus came all the way across the sea through a crazy storm. Why? To get to this guy. After he heals him, he goes back. There's no one, nothing else for him to do on this side of the sea. He comes simply for him, to heal him, to set him free from the demons. And his mission accomplished of cleansing this four times unclean demon actually shows his compassion. Jesus is the strong man of Mark 3 who binds the demons that he might set the prisoner free. He is the almighty with all power who uses his power to save the demoniac. Is this your Jesus? Is he a mighty God, your mighty God, and your mighty Savior? Is he your mighty God and your merciful Savior? Or do you think there's some things in your life that are just too shameful to talk about? Too dirty? Too bad? For him to really care? Is the real you not worthy to bring before God? It's hard to be truly known. When people ask me how I am, like, I'm always like, I don't know, like, which, which part do you want to show you, right? It's easier to put on a mask, one that not only covers your mouth, but covers your soul. We put on a smile, we put on an act, and we don't share how we really are. We don't share our anxieties, our sins, our sufferings. And by our silence, we actually cut off from our small groups and from ourselves the truth. We try to hide, not only from them, but we try to hide from God. We're scared. Some might really know the real us. Personally, I don't know all your sin and suffering, but I do know this. You're not worse than the demoniac. Whatever your sin, whatever your suffering, whatever your shame, you cannot be worse than him. And Jesus had pity on him. Jesus will have pity on you. Why don't you come to him? He knows the lies you believed. He knows the sin that's robbed your life of joy. He knows the chains of guilt and shame that devastate your life. He knows your loneliness and your enslavement to the sin that erodes your soul. He knows the torment and the weight of condemnation upon your shoulders. He knows the emptiness, the helplessness, the hopelessness of it all. Jesus Christ, merciful King, knows. If Jesus had mercy on this four times unclean demoniac, he will have mercy on you. Why don't you come to him? He's gentle and humble in heart. Why don't you come to him? His awesome power does not contradict his compassion. Why don't you come to him? He's a willing and able lover of wretched sinners like me and like you. Remember in Revelation 1, we saw this glorious picture of Christ, the shining sun in his face. John saw him and he fell over like a dead man. But the passage actually doesn't stop there. 
In verse 17, it says this, but he, Jesus, laid his right hand on me, saying, fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I'm alive forevermore. Like, I love that, right? Like this amazing glorious Christ, like literally knocks John out, like he's a dead man. But then Christ comes and he touches, touches John. He says, don't be afraid. Fear not. I'm here. Yes, Jesus is glorious. We would all keel over as if we're dead if we saw him in person. But that doesn't mean we need to fear him. He's mighty, but don't forget his mercy. He died for sin, our sin, and he rose for our victory. You can bring your sin and shame to Christ. He will welcome you with arms of love. He'll wash you clean of your sin and sorrow. He will forgive you. He said it. What could you confess that he doesn't already know? What could you share that he's not willing to forgive? He knows it all. He has the power to scare demons witless. He has the power to heal and save you. Now, I'm pretty sure you know that uh, small group leaders, they're, they're not Jesus. Um, if you don't know that, I'm pretty sure you should know that. Um, however, in small group, together we can bring the mercy and ministry of Christ to one another. Part of that means we confess our sins. We hear our struggles. And we pray for one another to live in righteousness. If you're the one who needs help, do not fear. Seek help. Jesus has forgiven us as leaders of far more sin, we're older, of far worse sin, we're worse sinners than you, than you've ever known. Or if you're the one listening as part of a small group to someone else's sin, don't judge. Remember how Christ has loved you, that even while you're at sinner, he died for you. Listen fully, truly, mercifully. We love because he loved us first. This is the mighty and the merciful son of God, son of the God most high. The only question now is, how will you respond to this king? And I want us to see two kinds of responses. The first is a response of fear and unbelief. Look at verse 14 with me. The herdsmen, the pigs herdmen, they fled and they told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from the region. If Jesus, if Jesus is casting out demons, that means he's assaulting the very kingdom of Satan. He's rescuing humanity from evil spirits. He's setting us free from bondage to sin and death. It means he's the good guy. He's the king of the kingdom of God. But these people, these herdsmen and all the people that come, they, they witness or they, they see the demoniac who's healed. They don't want that. They can't de deny the miracle. Like the, the demoniac, whom they probably know, is clearly sane. He's clothed. He's sitting. He's not crazy anymore. But they're afraid. They don't want anything to do with this mighty God. Verse 17 says, they begged Jesus to leave. It's the same word used to describe the demons begging of Jesus. I think Mark did that intentionally. I think he's equating the people's actions with the demons' actions. They both fear Jesus, and they want nothing to do with him at all. I guess, isn't that tragic? They literally meet the Almighty. They see with, with undeniable proof that it's him. And they want nothing to do with him. What about you? When you hear a sermon that shows you Christ, 
Do you respond with faith and obedience and excitement? Or would you rather just not deal with it? When you sing glorious truths and worship songs, is your heart excited? Or are they just like dead words that you're reading on a screen and you don't really care? When you see the glory of God in creation, you, you feel the warmth of the sun, the rush of the wind through the air, the deliciousness of food, do you give thanks to him? Or do you conveniently forget that he's actually the one who gave you all these good things? When you see Christ's power displayed, do you want him? Or would you rather him just leave you alone? How do you respond to this king? These people responded with fear and unbelief. And that's the default for enslaved sinners. But the only right way to respond to Christ is with wholehearted love and service. And we see that in the demoniac. We see that in the demoniac. I want to show you three things about how the former demoniac responds to Christ. First, look at his devotion. Look at verse 18. As he, Jesus, was getting to the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. Jesus begins to leave because the people didn't want him there, right? But the man begs that he simply be with Christ. That, that's beautiful, right? He just wants to be near his Savior. He yearns to be with the Lord. He wants to sit at the Messiah's feet and learn of him. But second, look at his mission. Jesus, in verse 19, did not permit him. But he said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Shockingly, Jesus says no. He says, no, you cannot follow me. You cannot be my disciple in this earth. But instead, here's your mission. Go and tell of the Lord's mercy on you. Tell your testimony, how you're enslaved demons, how you had no hope, you're completely wretched, and yet I had mercy on you. Look at number three, or third, look at the demoniac's witness, verse 20. And the demoniac went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis, that's the surrounding area, how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. The man obeyed. He did exactly what Jesus told him to do. He told everyone how much Jesus had done for him. In fact, the story in Mark 5, he probably told over and over and over again to everyone who would listen. Or to use Christian lingo, he shared his testimony about how the Lord saved him. And everyone marveled. Everyone was amazed at him. This is what worshipful gratitude to Christ looks like. Devotion, obedience, and witnessing. We love Jesus, the one who set us free. We hear his commands and we're eager to obey. We tell our friends, our family, our classmates, strangers, this is what God has done to me. This is merely ordinary Christianity. It's not like, oh, pastors do that, missionaries do that, the super Christians do that. This is mere ordinary Christianity. We not, may not be demoniacs, but if you're a Christian, you share the same basic story as he. I once was lost, but now I'm found because Christ came after me. I once was a slave, but now I'm free because Jesus came to rescue me. So if you're a Christian here today, if you're a Christian here today, I urge you to share how God saved you. I don't mean like, oh, you need to go preach from like a box or something or become a pastor. You could do that if, if you're, uh, God calls you to it. But what I mean is that just share the story with someone who will listen. Be a Christian friend, be a non-Christian friend, be your classmates, be your parents, your siblings, your journal, literally anyone and anything that's willing to listen, share how God saved you. Share how God saved you. In fact, I was actually on a walk today with a friend um, 
and we're just, you know, talking, catching up. And I didn't know how he became a Christian. So I asked him, I just assumed his parents were Christians. He's like, no, actually, I got saved because my friend brought me to church when I was in high school. He got saved at like 16. And his brother's a Christian, but his parents are not. I, I had no idea. And so I was just really overjoyed to hear how God used a small thing, small thing, like inviting someone to church to bring them to faith. So when you share your testimony, tell of Christ's wondrous love, that while you're helpless, Christ died for you. Tell of his incomparable mercy, that he reached down to you when you were a slave to sin. Tell of his glorious power, that he broke the chains of guilt and shame with his bloody cross. Tell of Christ how much he has done for you, how he has had mercy on you. And if you're not a Christian here today, ask someone here, how did you become a Christian? What's your story? How did you become a Christian? What's your story? Our Lord Jesus is the God of mercy and might. He's a power and a pity, king and yet kind. He came to conquer the kingdom of Satan, to bring the kingdom of God with mercy and with might. He came to rescue the weak and the weary, the sinners and the demoniacs, the filthy and the vile. That's us. So let us worship him and him alone. And we can do that as Zach leads us by singing one last song, and then I will pray for us. Amazing grace. Life 
has the sun. We know that stays to sing God's praise and when we first begun amazing grace how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Please pray with me. Father, we are without your grace, Lord, sinners, slaves, dead. But you sent your son, Lord, not just to give us an example, not just to teach us a few good morals, not just even to amaze us by his miracles and power. Lord, you sent him to die. You sent him to die for our sins, which we committed against you. Our sins by which we declared that we are king and not you, Lord. But now we confess with you, Lord, that we are sinners and that you loved us. We profess, Lord, Christ is our king, the king of mercy and of might. We profess that he is the son of the most high God and that he came or humbled himself even to the point of death that Lord, we might be free in him. We thank you that he has been resurrected, that he has conquered our uncleanliness, that he has conquered our wretchedness, that Lord, we have no more sin and shame because he has been crucified. And with him, our guilt has been done away with forever, Lord. There's no, now no condemnation for those who are in him. So now, Lord, by your spirit, help us to respond with faith, with love, with devotion, with worship, Lord because you deserve it. You are a God and there is no other. I thank you so much, Lord, for everyone here. I ask the Lord you'd bless us as we go to small groups. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.